blessings that he bestows on us. And oftentimes they are miraculous. And oftentimes they are designated specifically for us by name. Isn't that something? And so we're thankful for that. Um, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Would you join me in reading this passage together? Let's, let, let's read it. Beginning in verse 3, here is what Paul writes. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless, blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. From this passage, I'm almost not able to stand here. After reading that, Jeff, that was pretty good, wasn't it? I've selected two words out of this passage to tag to it. Those two words, in him. In him, which we're going to talk about today, in him. I have a friend. I have a friend uh, who closes every letter or email simply with these words, in him. In him. Uh, it seems simple, it seems plain, but as plain, pedestrian, and uh, uncomplicated as these two words may appear, this is actually a loaded phrase. It's loaded. It's power-packed with heavy and deep theology, Christology, and even anthropology. In him. What is then the real meaning and implications of being in him? What's behind it? What, what's, what's the meaning of it? Uh, the most common description in scripture of a follower of Jesus is that he or she is a person in Christ. The expression in Christ or in the Lord or in him occurs all throughout the New Testament, including 
164 times in the letters of Paul alone and are indispensable. These words, this phrase is indispensable to a proper understanding of what the New Testament is trying to say. To be in Christ does not mean to be inside Christ, uh, as it were, tools in a toolbox or clothes in a closet, but to be organically united to Christ as a limb in the body or as a branch on a tree. It stands for the idea that Christians are in such inconceivably intimate spiritual relations with their Lord that he may be regarded in some ways as an inclusive personality, embracing the whole of the real life of the believer in the church. To be in him is quite a thing. It is this personal relationship with Christ that is the distinctive mark of his authentic followers who are us. It's the mark that we carry in him. Uh, I like what John Stott says about it. John Stott once said this. He said, to be in Christ is to find personal fulfillment, to enjoy brotherly unity, and to experience a radical transformation. Only then, he says, can we become the world's salt and light, sharing the good news with others, making an impact on society, and above everything else, seeking to bring honor and glory to his wonderful name in him. Malcolm Muggeridge. Anybody ever heard that name? Malcolm Muggeridge. It's quite a name, isn't it? He has something interesting to say as well. He expresses his thoughts on this prodigious posture of incorporation with Christ when he says, I may, I suppose, regard myself as being a relatively successful man. People occasionally stare at me in the street that's fame. I can fairly easily earn enough to qualify for admission to the highest slopes of inland revenue. That's success. Furnished with money and a little fame, even the elderly, if they care to, can partake of trendy diversions. That's pleasure. It might happen once in a while that something I said or wrote was sufficiently heated to persuade myself that it represented a serious impact on our time. That's fulfillment. Yet I say to you, and I beg of you to believe me, multiply these tiny triumphs by millions. Add them all together, and they are nothing, less than nothing, a positive impediment measured against one draught of living water that Christ offers to the spiritually thirsty. That's what it means to be in him. In him. But if Stott's and Muggeridge's explanation don't suffice, Paul himself describes it from his apostolic vantage point in Galatians 
2 and 20 when he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In him. So in most other references, some that I've mentioned and some that I've not in the New Testament, in him or in Christ refers to who we are in him or what it means to be in him. But in today's passage, Ephesians chapter 3 verses, I'm sorry, Ephesians chapter 1 verses 3 through 14, Paul deals not with who we are in him or what it means to be in him. Paul deals with what we have in him. It's all right to talk back. What we have in him. You, you, you should have got excited right there. What we have. Paul will lay out for us what we have in him. In Christ, these two words, this phrase, the reference to this phrase dominates this passage. In the first 14 verses of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the phrase or its equivalent occurs 11 times. First time we saw it was last week uh, in verse 1. From last week's message, we saw it then. The next time it appears is here in verse 3, which is the beginning of today's text. Verse 3 says this. Let me read it again. It says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. In the heavenly places, in Christ. It's important. Beginning in verse 3, all the way through verse 14, Paul is engaged in worship. There's worship going on, and it begins here. He's engaged in worship. He begins to praise God for everything he has done to save us and bless us in Christ. It is actually one long, continuous anthem of praise that ascends the heights of God's grace and glory. Verses 3 through 14. Verse 3 sets the stage and introduces this idea of spiritual blessings or what we have in him. It's important to know uh, what we have in him. It's very important that we understand that, that we know what we have. We're made aware of what we have in him or how he's blessed us. It's important for us to be reminded of that so that, number one, we can be confident. Confidence springs from this idea and this understanding of how God has blessed us. Whenever you think about it, your confidence should swell. Whenever you think about it, you should be encouraged to run on to see what the end's going to be like. Confidence comes from our awareness of what God has given us. Not just, I'm not talking about your stuff. <laughs> I'm 
talking about the stuff you have. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about spiritual blessings. It should bolster and build our confidence. In fact, Paul writes about it in his letter to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 6. He says this, being confident, there's that word, in this very thing that he who has begun a good work in us shall perform it or complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Edward, it should increase our confidence when we think about our blessings. But not only confidence, not only is it important for that, but it's also important so that we can properly bless him who has blessed us. You can't forget to do that. That's what Paul says. Watch verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul is suggesting that part of our duty, part of our responsibility, part of our role is is to bless the one who has blessed us. And when we know how he has blessed us and what he has blessed us with, we can do it easier. It it comes more naturally Uh, to bless God as we should. We need to understand how he has blessed us. So what are these spiritual blessings that Paul refers to here? What are they? I like to talk about four of them from this passage. Each of them, by the way, are introduced by those two words, in him. Each of these four. It begins in verses four through six. As we deal with, watch this, predestination. Lord, I'm putting my galoshes on right now. My high, my hip waders, Jeff. We're getting ready to step in some deep water, right? Verses 4 through 6, we deal with and unpack this spiritual blessing called predestination. Look at what it says in 4. Even as he chose us, hear those two words, in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Here's what, it, here's what, it, what, what, what he's talking about. Before anything was created, we were on God's mind. Before anything was created, we were on his mind. Before he created the heavens and the earth, the fowls of the air, the fish of the sea, even before he created Adam and Eve, he had already preordained that we would be holy and blameless in his presence. What does that mean? It means this, holy and blameless speaks of our present religious standing before God, not of our ultimate moral attainment. doesn't have anything to do with your morality, how good you are. It is our position before God that he blessed us with before the foundations of the world. This again takes us into the deep theological waters of the doctrine of election or predestination. I don't really have time to deal with it like I need to, so you're just going to have to be satisfied with how I do deal with it. Because if we dealt with it like we needed to, we'd be here for all week long. We're not going to do that. All right, I'm going to try to keep my eye on the clock this morning. <laughs> Amen. Somebody. 
Uh, so, so, so it takes us into these deep waters. Predestined, what does it mean? It means to mark out beforehand, a course being set. Predestination is always unconditional and initiated by God. He alone is responsible. This speaks to the divine purposes that God has as it relates to all created things. It literally means to mark off. It is the exercise of God's divine prerogative and his perfect will. This whole passage, this whole passage, 3 through 14, is full of words that describe God purposing, planning, willing, and choosing from before the world's beginning. It's all throughout this passage and all throughout in other places in Scripture. Of course, though, none of us can pretend to really fathom predestination, much less understand it. It's difficult to understand. We aren't asked, though, to understand the ins and outs, how it aligns with free will or why God chose who he chose. We are instead expected to accept the doctrine of election by faith and praise God for it. I don't pretend to understand all the ins and outs of it. All I know is I'm glad about it. I'm glad about it. Uh, the story is told of a group of theologians who were discussing the tension between predestination and free will. Things became so heated that the group broke up into two opposing factions. But one man, not knowing which to join, stood for a moment trying to decide. Which one should I join? At last, he joined the predestination group. Who, who sent you here? They asked. No one sent me, he replied. I came of my own free will. Free will, they exclaimed. You can't join us. You belong to the other group. So he followed their orders and went to the other clique. Then someone asked, why did you join us? The man replied, well, I didn't really decide. I was sent here. Sent here? They shouted, you can't join us unless you've decided of your own free will. So there's a quandary, <laughs> a quandary going on. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says something about it. He says this, God's sovereign choice and predestination and our personal responsibility to believe are two such truths that run perfectly parallel to each other. Two rails for the same railroad track. Two parallel lines that never meet. If we remove one or the other, if we move them closer together, or if we separate them, the train will careen into the ditch. Both rails are essential, Swindoll says, for the truth to proceed. Can I share with you where we stand? Leaders here at Bethel, here's where we stand. We hold fast to this biblical paradox. It's not a contradiction. It's a paradox. That on the one hand, God is sovereign. And on the other hand, we are all accountable and guilty for our sin and deserving of wrath. It's a paradox, but that's, it is what it is. Right? Here's something that, that, that uh, the all-famous and often quoted, sometimes I feel like I quote him too much, but I'm going to quote him again today. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this, Christ 
was at the everlasting council. He can tell you whether you were chosen or not because Christ was there. But you cannot find out in any other way. Go and put your trust in him. There will be no doubt about his having chosen you when you have chosen him. Who ought to just stop and sit down right there and just get a benediction? Spurgeon just preached it for me, didn't he? That's, that's, the, that's the bottom line of this whole predestination argument or discussion, right? Uh, but then here's the question that arises for us that are already in the fold. Our names are already written in the book of life. What do we do? What do believers do now because of this paradox? From our limited earthly perspective, we don't know who will believe and who won't. Our role then is to share the gospel with as many people as we can and then trust God to do his convincing and saving work by his spirit. You can't use predestination as an out, as an excuse not to evangelize. We have that responsibility. We ought to tell everybody we meet about Jesus and let God do the rest. It's difficult to understand, but Paul helps us with the difficulty when he says in Romans 11, 33 through 36, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be glory forever. You ought to land the plane right there. To him, be glory forever. Amen. <laughs> For Paul, Paul just said that, right? Here's the bottom line. Bottom line is realizing how important you are in the plan of God, both as a recipient and an agent of grace. That's, what, that's, that's, that's the bottom line. So then Paul helps us understand this first spiritual blessing, predestination. It is a blessing. Then he moves into blessing number two in the text. It is redemption. Redemption. It, it's, it, it, we see it in 7 through 10. I'm going to read verse 7. Here's what verse 7 says. In him we have redemption. There are those two words, in him. Redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Redemption through his blood. Blessing, spiritual blessing number two is redemption through his blood. Uh, in the ancient world, slaves could be redeemed. A price could be paid for their freedom. So then redemption, uh, originally referred to the word redemption, buying back a slave or captive, that is making free by a payment of ransom. Here it means something else, though. It means release from a captive condition. Release, redemption, figurative of the release from sin that comes through Christ. Through Christ. Release from sin. We were slaves to sin. Because of the blood, we've been released from that. The payment price to buy us back from our slavery to sin was his blood. 
This is based squarely, you're recalled, on the Old Testament sacrificial system of a lamb or an animal being slain for the sins of the people. Animal sacrifice for atonement of sin was God's way of teaching principles of holiness and sin, forgiveness and grace to the early Israelites. And this principle is carried over when we see the spotless lamb who shed his blood for us that we might be redeemed. I am redeemed, bought with a price. The songwriter says, Jesus has changed my whole life. If anybody asks you just who I am, you just tell them that I am redeemed. Don't stop there, though. Go ahead and tell them that I've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus redeemed me. So then, if you remove Christ's blood from Christianity, his death becomes a mere symbol. Sin becomes only human frailty. The results of sin are earthly tragedy and love and grace are present without righteousness or justice. The blood is important. Then in verse 8, Paul moves to still talking about redemption. He moves to this other concept of lavished. I just like saying that word, grace. Lavished grace, Rick. You, you have any concept of what? It, it, you know, you know uh, John Newton almost gets the concept in his song, Amazing Grace, but not quite. He says, Paul says, God lavished through redemption his grace. Look at verse 8. It says this. Which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Lavished grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying here that our redemption and forgiveness are in accordance with or to the extent of the wealth, riches, or abundance of God's favor. In other words, our redemption is not barely enough, but it's plenteous. Our forgiveness is not scarcely, but abundantly given. Uh, God has not just gone through the motion. Just enough to get by. But his grace has been lavished upon us. Lavished means to be in abundance or to abound. Right? It's the picture we are given is of overflowing love. Surpassing grace. A cherishing by God. That is much more than enough for us. And Certainly undeserved, but he lavishes his grace upon us. And then in verses 9 and 10, he deals with this mystery idea because in verse 9, it says this. Make it, it's still talking about redemption, but he says this. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. So uh, to unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. What is this mystery that Paul refers to? Uh, here it is. In Christ, not in anything or anyone else, will everything be summed up. 
not only the believers of God's people, but all things in heaven and on earth. Christ is to be the all and in all, the sum of the parts. It's all summed up in Christ. In other words, here's what he's saying. When the process of history is completed, the fullness of time, all diverse and often conflicting elements in the universe will be brought into unity in Christ. To sum up or unite means in logic to bring a multiplicity of concepts under one inclusive idea. That's what Jesus is doing. That's the mystery. Jesus is going to bring it all together in the fullness of time. Everything that doesn't make sense, everything that grandmama used to tell you you'd understand it better by and by, Jesus is going to make it plain. He's going to bring all of it together. Paul says this in Colossians about it. In Colossians 1, verse 16 and 20, he says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. All things summed up, united through him. The summing up of all things in Christ is not only God's purpose in history, it is the primary subject then of this entire epistle. Summing up in the fullness of time through Christ. So Paul then shares with us this spiritual blessing predestination, then he shares with us this spiritual blessing uh, of redemption. Then he moves on to help us to see the spiritual blessing of inheritance. It's in verses 11 and 12. Here's what it says. It begins with those same two words as the other spiritual blessings begin with, in him. Y'all, in fact, y'all ought to say it with me, in him. I need to hear somebody else say that, in him. Because, this man, that's a, that's a strong thing, isn't it? That's a strong statement, phrase, in him. Paul says, in him we have obtained, I know y'all not used to doing all, but you're glad I'm not asking you to tell your neighbor. You ought to be glad I'm not asking you to do that. Tell your neighbor in him, I could be telling you that, and you'd be like, wait a minute now, we're not talking to neighbors. (laughs) I could take you around the corner somewhere, you'd hear that all day. (laughs) Tell it, sister. (laughs) You go, just throw a rock, you're going to hear it all, yeah, Amen. Tell your neighbor in him. All right, all right, I'm not going to do it to you. (laughs) We have, Paul says, obtained an inheritance. He says this in 11. We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Obtained an inheritance is what Paul says. In other words, God has provided for an eternal, irrevocable inheritance grounded in his sovereign choice and predestined according to his will. We have this inheritance. It belongs to us. We've been granted it. We've been given this inheritance. Peter writes about it. First Peter chapter three, chapter one, verses three and four. Peter says this: "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you." Peter says, 
This is our inheritance. Paul says we are joint heirs with Christ. He writes about it in my favorite chapter in all the Bible, Romans 8, 8, 16 and 17 says this. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, providing we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. It is our inheritance, our spiritual inheritance. We are joint heirs. Our joint heirship means that we have already received some things. We've already received forgiveness. We've already received redemption. We've already received the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we are promised some future things. This is what inheritance is all about. We've already gotten some stuff. But we, Robert, we, later on, we're going to get the rest of it. Uh, resurrection with glorified bodies. I'm not going to look like this no more. I'm going to look different. Then I look now in a, in a good way. It wouldn't take much for me to look better than I, but I'm just saying. I look forward, Jane, to the glorified body that I've been promised. Resurrection. Not only that, uh, eternal life with Christ. Not only that, eternal rule with Christ. Our inheritance. Paul writes this familiar passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says this, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left unto the coming of our Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together, the rapture with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the and so we will always. Woo, that's good. Always. Bob, always be with the Lord. Leah, we're going to always be with him. Forever and ever and ever, there will be no end. This is, Paul says, our inheritance. And it is a spiritual blessing. Then he closes out with a good one. He's dealt with those. Now he closes it out with our sealing. Sealing, he says. We're sealed. Look at verses 13 and 14. This is what 13 says. It starts with those same two words. I'm not going to make you say it to your neighbor. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That's what he says. You were sealed. When you heard and believed. It's a reference to the idea that official documents in antiquity were sealed, implying protection and ownership. These documents, they were sealed. I like what Dr. Tony Evans says about this. He puts it this way. He says, when you believe in Christ as your Savior, God puts you inside an envelope called Christ. You are then in Christ, but God also guarantees delivery. He registers the letter and seals it with the Holy Spirit, indicating that he is its owner and the only one qualified to open the letter. Boy, that's good right there. More than one of y'all should have clapped on that. I feel like I might ought to read it again, but I'm not. 
Just clap anyway. You, you know, that's, that's good stuff to know that he has sealed us. We have been sealed by the precious Holy Spirit. Paul deals with it later in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, when he says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We've been sealed. Signed and almost delivered. <laughs> we're on our way to delivery Right. We, we, we've been signed and sealed. Uh, and then in 14, he talks about this guarantee. 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Guarantee. What's he mean by that? Uh, he means this. This experience of life in the spirit is the earnest. Or down payment or first installment of full salvation. Though the church has already been redeemed, yet in another sense, this emancipation is future. And the present experience of the Spirit is a first installment on our inheritance, pending the full emancipation of, our, of God's people, pending it. But we've been, it's been guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. It is the earnest or the down payment, like when you go to buy a house and you have to put down earnest money. It secures the fact that you plan to purchase that home, and there is the security, the down payment that says, I'm coming back to get my house. God says the down payment, the earnest, the First installment is the Holy Spirit. He's given us that guarantees that he's coming back for us. Romans 8, and 23 says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth unto now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we, as we eagerly await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That God will open the seal and receive us with full inheritance. For now, Holy Spirit is our guarantee. So here it is. What's, what's our application with, to all of these, to the understanding of all of these spiritual blessings? What do we do with this? What, what, what do we then take this information and do with it when we leave these doors? I suggest to you that it ought to cause us to have a new energy about God, a new excitement about God, a new confidence in him that we would live differently, that we would act differently, that we would praise and worship differently, knowing not just who we are in Christ, not just what it means to be in Christ, but what we have in Christ. It ought to cause us to worship in a different way. It ought to cause us to glorify him in a different way. When we think about this lavished grace, I can't get over that word. I love it, lavished grace. When we think about it, we ought to ask ourselves, what is the proper response to lavished grace? And here's where we ought to land. The proper response to lavished grace ought to be lavished glory so that if God, if God 
pours out lavishly his grace on us, we ought to pour out lavishly our glory towards him. And so that every now and then you ought to let somebody know how much you thank God. How I'm not telling you to act like I do. There are not many people that act like I do. But even in your quiet time, you ought to every now and then just say, God, I thank you. I'm trying to work on my emotions. But I'm encouraging you to every now and then let your emotions go. I'm not telling you you have to cry like I do, but I'm just saying sometimes it's good. Let a tear fall. Amen, somebody. Lavished grace demands lavished glory. It's what happens to David, and I'm closing with this. It's what happens to David when he looks back over his life and what God has brought him through. How God had delivered him and how God had made a way for him and how God had rescued him and kept him safe from hurt, harm, evil, and danger. He begins to lavish glory on God in Psalm 34 when he says these words. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David says, I saw the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And then he closes this psalm out this way. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. That ought to be, our response ought to be similar to David's. I can't say it quite like David, and neither can you. But we ought to have something that just oozes out of us lavishly when we think about the goodness of God and all of his spiritual blessings. It should happen. Lord, we thank you. We praise you today for your word that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. Help us, Lord, to recognize who we are in Christ, what it means to be in Christ, and what we have in Christ so that we will have confidence and so that we can bless you like we ought to. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. With that, if you're still awake, extend this main primary invitation, the one that's all important. If you're here today, I'm just going to say it this way, and you don't know Jesus, man, you need to do it right now. <laughs> I'm not using flowing words and all that. Do it right now. Because I'm going to just say this. If 2020 and the beginning of 2021 hadn't shown you that life is fragile and it's like a vapor and that tomorrow is not promised, and that you need to get it right. <laughs> I don't know what's going. I don't know what we'll show you. 
So I'll just say it this way again. Do it today. We have people, brothers that are standing. They're here, uh, Warren, Sam, Chris, myself, Jeff. Uh, we'd love to pray with you. And other, any, any of these other strong brothers we have in the art ladies that we have here in the, that would like to, they would like to pray with you and lead you to this relationship that we know. So if you're that person, let us know so we can pray with you and introduce you to this man from Galilee who changed the whole course of the world. Uh, then if you're here and you've been considering becoming a member here at Bethel Hope and you haven't done it yet, but you'd like to go ahead and do it, or you have questions about that, reach out to one of us and we'd love to tell you about that. We have a brand new process online. It's very simple uh, and easy to do. And we'll show you how to get that done and uh, walk you through that process so that you can become a member here at Bethel Hope. Uh, with that, if there's anybody...